This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 3rd of February. This week we'll discuss the growing squeeze on classroom places because Dubai is growing so quickly that the schools are struggling to keep up. We discussed the situation with Susan Roberts from Which School Advisor and we heard from one of the UAE's newest schools, Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Meanwhile, we are days away from a new UAE space mission. Emirati astronaut Sultan Al-Niyadi will spend six months aboard the International Space Station and part of his mission will be speaking to school children. We heard from him and also from the UAE's first Emirati astronaut, Haza Al-Mansouri. Meanwhile, schools in the UAE are helping their colleagues in African countries by donating their old furniture to help. Jenny Mullen from Kids Inc. Design talked us through how it works and how you can get involved. And children's author and actor Ben Miller is in town for the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. And as part of the programme, he's been touring schools to meet pupils. Earlier this week, he visited Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, and he joined me on the line to explain where he gets inspiration for his books. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. And more importantly, welcome to Eye on Education. It is our chance to take a look at all the uh, schools stories hitting the headlines over the last three days and get into the nitty gritty uh, of all those hot topics of what's actually going on behind the school gates. Our big topic today is that Dubai schools appear to be filling up. We'll be having more on that in the next few minutes. But it's not just schools that are filling up, is it, Zena? There are you know, there are universities who are running out of places as well. Yes, and that is one of our big stories. After a tough couple of years, Georgia, universities here in Dubai especially are seeing a surge in new enrollments as student mobility comes back after the pandemic, of course. Now, earlier, the Business Breakfast spoke to Claire Roper Browning. She's the regional director at Harriet Watt University uh, over here in Dubai Knowledge Village, and she said they've seen enrollments from new countries. Really fantastic. It's been an an exciting year for us with lots and lots of changes in the market. So students coming in from from new countries uh, and large numbers that we've never really seen before, from countries like Russia, Ukraine, for example. So student numbers at Harriet Watt are looking really, really great this year. We've got an intake in January and it's our highest one ever. And there's also increasing interest in technology courses, according to Claire. That's a global phenomenon, but I think it's really, really happening in Dubai because of the pace at which this city moves and this country is moving. The demand for things like artificial intelligence, cyber security, data science, design is really phenomenal kind of rises, which we're seeing particularly in Dubai rather than across our other campuses globally. Interesting stuff there to hear about both schools and universities filling up here. Uh, Needless to say, I've noticed it on the roads. But I'm not going to go on about the traffic jams for today, (laughs) at least. Or I'm not going to go on about the school run. We can save that for a bit later on. (laughs) Yeah, that's for later in about an hour. Now, our next story is about sleep and our kids. Now, do you think schools here start too early? And should our kids be sleeping in instead? Yes, I do. I definitely do. In fact, I chose my school that my children go to on the basis that it's slightly later so my kids so they have to be in I think by I think class starts at 
8.15. But I mean, obviously, we get them in earlier because yeah. we want to get rid of them and I need to get to work. But um, And also, they do have sort of extra activities in the morning. Sometimes they do sport first thing in the morning. But I know of schools for, I think most schools, don't they just have to be in at 7.30? 7.30, exactly. And some of the younger kids even have to wake up at 5.30 because they, they need to catch the school bus if, you know, both parents yes. are working. So, um, yeah, I mean, with the younger ones, my children are horribly early risers. So they're mostly up and about anyway. But I think that I think it must be heartbreaking to wake up a sleeping child every single morning. And, you know, and, you know, we don't no one has a siesta mid afternoon anymore. You know, we have air conditioning now. You know, I think one of the reasons why school started so early here in the past was because, you know, it was to beat the heat. But now the day just passes, you know, we, we slightly ignore the heat. We work around the heat. So I think they could start later. A little later indeed. Now, this is a story published by the National Sleep Experts have called on UAE schools to introduce later start times uh, to help teenagers get enough rest. So this is focused on teenagers. Uh, They've had Mary uh, Karskaden, a professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University in the U.S. Uh, She was in the UAE this week to explain why she believes schools and parents would benefit from the school day starting later. Now, she said teenagers need at at least nine hours of sleep and many of them are not getting that amount. And as a result, they're not focused, they're moody, they're tired, and they come home from school um, and they're just exhausted. I have to say, my kids are pretty exhausted in the moment. I, I worry that I've piled a bit too much into their diaries. You know, you always just think, yeah, the more physical activity, I've got boys, so the more physical activity they do, the better. Uh, but actually, I think, you know, one day, once they've played an hour of rugby, they are actually too exhausted to do anything else. So Gosh. there's a lot going on. Uh, yeah, I think there's that, that is a whole nother conversation as to whether or not we fill our children's diaries with too much stuff. And actually, they should just be left to play. I remember being bored through most of my childhood. And I think that's very good for you in some ways. It Maybe it encourages imagination. Exactly. I think it's good. Okay, young UAE residents uh, now have until the 8th of February, so not long, to submit their entries to Global Villages competition. What have they got going on there? Well, they've got a competition where scholarships worth over a million dirhams are up for grabs. Now, the Young Directors Awards competition that's been organized together with the Bloom World Academy invites children aged 5 to 14 to create a short video that tells the story of what they or someone they know would do to make the world a better place. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, it's good news. Actually, I'd be very enthusiastic about getting the kids involved in that. All about just developing their creativity. Mine are already amazing at doing those TikTok videos where you, I know they're not allowed on TikTok, but I let them create stuff. Where they sort of edit several videos together. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think they're just so savvy already that... Yeah, it's just a skill that kids already have because they were born with YouTube in front of them and everything. Uh, Okay, a bit more of a serious story there uh, here because Sharjah's private school regulator will publish the results of its first comprehensive inspection cycle of the Emirates private schools in April. This is weird. I'm sure that they've been doing more studies, surely, more inspections. We had them in the school in Dubai, just, you know, our school last week. The KHDA did ours last week. And now they're doing them in Sharjah, I guess. They are. So the Sharjah Private Education Authority, or 
SPEA was formed in 2018, so it's very new. It's responsible for regulating private schools in the Emirates. Uh, that includes nurseries as well and training centers from the Ministry of Education. Now, the authority is currently progressing through the second half of the current inspection cycle. They have 111 private schools uh, with 10 different types of curriculum currently in use. Now, this is great for the private school system. I think in Sharjah, as you know, inspections determine rankings. That has an effect on school fees as well. So this can only raise the standards of private education in Sharjah. Interesting stuff. Now, uh, there is a new study out of the United States, which I suppose underlined something that many parents already fear to be true. We know that we shouldn't be letting our children have too much screen time. And now researchers at the Harvard University Center on the Developing Child say that letting infants watch tablets and TV may actually impair their academic achievement and emotional well-being later on. Zina, what did the study discover? Well, the study found that increased use of screen time during infancy was associated with poorer executive functioning once the child was nine years old. Now, those executive functioning skills are important for higher level cognition. That means emotional regulation, learning, um, academic achievement, and mental health. And they influence our success socially, academically, professionally, and how we care for ourselves. So this is a very, very worrying finding from the study. It really is. Uh, Oddly enough, I was out with friends last night and their little one was watching Peppa Pig on the cartoons and he's 20 months and obviously they only do it very regularly Mm -hmm. and I think if you do everything you know a little bit then it's okay but if you're putting babies or toddlers in front of the television for hours the reality is that this study says that it's going to have a major impact when they get older. Gosh one effect I think is they have a shorter attention span because they watch a lot of short form videos so for example my daughter can't even sit through uh, an entire movie because that's too long for her because she's used to five-minute YouTube videos. I, do you know I, know, I know that feeling, and I, yours is slightly younger than mine. That is an age thing, honestly. Really? As soon as they hit eight or nine, all of a sudden they can sit through a, a movie for longer. I think you should be proud. I think it means that you haven't sat her, sat her in front of the TV for hours at a time. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think you should look at it that way. That's how I looked at it anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, we're also asking whether or not college admission tests might be a thing of the past. That's because the Ministry of Education has just announced a major change. Universities in the UAE will be allowed to set their own entry requirements for students studying at publicly run schools. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Right, welcome back to the agenda. Welcome back to Eye on Education, which is our chance to focus on all the top schools and university stories hitting the headlines. And there's a big one, uh, and I don't think it's appeared in the newspapers yet, but the reality is is that we have seen a surge in school enrolments in this academic year. And I'm asking you whether or not your school's Uh, whether your child's school is big enough to accommodate the current surge because the number of students in Dubai has been growing fast in recent years. Let me give you a little bit of a lowdown because back in November, the KHDA announced a 4.5% increase in student numbers across Dubai's private schools from this year. Uh, Then last year, the number of students topped 300,000 for the first time ever. That was also a 4.9% increase from the previous academic year. And by the end of 2020, 
2022, there were 312,000 students enrolled in private schools in Dubai. But we've received messages from parents who say their children's schools are now struggling with physical space so that they can make more classes, essentially, as more students enroll. So what is the real story here? Um, I'd love to hear from you. Please do get in touch if you feel that your school is getting overcrowded. 4001 or you can message me on 04871 In the meantime, I'm joined by Susan Roberts, who is a senior editor at Which School Advisor. Joining me on Teams, obviously, Susan has a fantastic overview of all the schools in the UAE. How are you, Susan? Lovely to have you with us. Very well, thank you. Uh, lovely to be here again, Georgia. Um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? This, um, mm. I think from a school's perspective, probably wouldn't describe it as a, as a negative or a struggle. Um, for some time, a lot of schools have not been at full capacity and due to you know, a variety of geopolitical reasons, economic reasons, we have got this, this incredible influx coming into Dubai just now of, of new families. Um, and schools are indeed getting very busy. You're quite right in saying that. OK, so it is good news for schools who maybe had built huge buildings and, and needed to fill the classrooms. And certainly, you know, the school that my kids go to opened about five or six years ago, maybe a little bit longer. But for a long time, it felt quite empty. There just, you know, there weren't enough kids to fill the, fill the building. And, and that can make a school feel a little bit insecure. You know, the last thing a parent wants is for her, is for their school to go bust, for example. However, more pupils in the school often means more pupils in the classroom. And, and that's not the best case scenario, is it? I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind this is not necessarily the case across the board. There are a lot, a lot of schools in Dubai who have set their their maximum capacities in classes very clearly, communicated very clearly to parents and set with it. Um, what often becomes the issue is, as you know, parents enroll their children in these wonderful new or newish schools or not full schools um, and have the luxury of perhaps 15 children in a class um, and get used to that and teachers get used was, to it as well. well well, I was one of those parents. I have to say, for a long time, I thought that, you know, 15 or 16 in the class was just normal. And now it's gone up in my school to like 24. I'm a bit like, this is outrageous. I need more teaching assistance. My children aren't getting the attention they need. And you're quite normal in that. Certainly what we hear as well is there are a lot of frustrations with that. Now, and I think there's a, there are differentiating factors here in terms of a parent's perspective on this. I think we have to ask ourselves, did the school actually promise that was how it was going to continue? Uh, chances are the school was built um, and, and designed in terms of how they would financially manage with higher numbers in each class. It may have always been the goal and 24 really is quite regular, I'm afraid to say. Um, it is it's quite expected in, in a lot of primary schools. There are schools that, that go below this, but that is quite regular and quite good. Um, but if you've gotten used to less and perhaps that communication hasn't been clear, perhaps you haven't had something written down in a policy, it is understandable there are frustrations. Um, but the expectation to have schools keep at those low numbers perhaps quite unrealistic. Now, that being said, there are schools going considerably above this just now. And in recent times, we are certainly hearing of this. Um, my advice definitely would be to parents to really look at what has been written down, look at what has been promised, because really that's what the school needs to keep to. Um, if they have not had those things promised, that it would be lower numbers, then sorry, parents, you've 
you really should have asked those questions. Yeah. You should have got that clarified at the start. It is just the deal. I mean, realistically, some schools are having to open. They're so busy that they aren't just, you know, filling up more, filling up the classrooms. They're actually taking on new classrooms. They're taking on new teachers. And instead of having five classes in year one, you've got six. Uh, and as a consequence, they're, they're physically running out of space. Have you spoken to schools where that's the reality? Um, I, I wouldn't say it's the majority, but I am hearing of cases like this. And there's a number of reasons why that might be the case. It may be that the school is trying to expand um, the intake that it can have. And then some schools are, are building additional facilities to accommodate these these increases, which is great. Um, it may well be that they have an increase in students of particular age groups and quite low numbers in others. Um, and sorry, parents, these are businesses at the end of the day. They do have to keep afloat as well. Um, they have to get creative sometimes. They may well increase certain age groups when the others are, are not managing so well. They have to get creative, essentially. Now, in my view, the quality of the educational experience that children are going to get when there are these constraints, let's say, um, are how creative they can be and how well they can go about doing that. Yeah, I mean, I went to a very expensive school when I was in my teens. And I have to say the science block was basically porter cabins then, uh, despite the massive fees we were paying. So and I learned just fine in those porter cabins. So I, I think, you know, the, the quality of the classroom, as long as it's air conditioned and clean and bright, then I think people can, you know, it depends on the teacher in many ways of how charismatic they are. I mean, there is Now, this is a bit of a thorny issue. And, and I know that some of the parents in my group, you know, you have the WhatsApp groups, have mentioned this because we've had a few children join our school for whom English is most definitely not their first language. In fact, many of them don't speak English. And I know that that's happened quite a lot. If you have a sudden influx of people into the country, then then often, you know, that maybe the children don't speak English and you might end up with quite a few non-English speakers in the classroom. This is presuming you're going to an English school. Obviously, it's the same for an Arabic school or a French school. Um, are schools managing that sensibly? Do you think how big an impact does several non-English speaking children have in a classroom? Because you can, well, you can imagine I'm already basically saying it, you know, is my child's education going to suffer because the teacher is having to focus on the two kids who can't speak English? I sound awful, don't I? But it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's a difficult one because no matter how we talk about this, yes, we, we do sound awful and we feel awful. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just an issue of children uh, not speaking English um, to a level where they can easily access the curriculum. This is the issue of inclusion as a whole. Um, it might be children with, with additional learning needs, with different learning needs. It's just that right now, the real sudden change is that there is a real increase in children who perhaps don't have that proficiency in English to access the curriculum as they should be able to. Um, there are many schools that are being very careful um, about just the number of children that will need this additional support that they enrol and trying to make sure that that these children are not all in, in certain classes because that could be a lot of pressure on, on particular classes, particular teachers and so on. Um, it's it's hard. There is no easy answer. Schools need additional resources in terms of expertise in order to support these children while ensuring that the, the needs of all children are met. Um, it's, it is tricky. Schools are finding it tricky. Schools are, are trying to get that balance. And as we can all imagine, for the families of these children who need a good school space, um, it's a very, very emotional and challenging situation for them as well. 
it also can relate to the space issue. If you have children that have different needs, like, for example, needing ex extra support in, in their language understanding and their, their, their speaking of English and writing, um, they may well need to be taken one-to-one -one or in small groups to do additional activities, to do things a little bit differently. They may need that quiet space in order to do this. If a school is really at capacity, that, that can be challenging to manage as well. And as I said before, requires quite the creative thinking to, to manage the logistics of that too. Yeah, I mean, the great news is that, I mean, we've had children move into our compound who uh, moved from France, for example, for the first two weeks, they couldn't speak a word of English. And then a month later, I see them and they're more fluent than my own. So, you you know, children do learn languages incredibly quickly, which is fantastic news. Really, well, Susan, fascinating to speak to you. Really interesting. I suppose it is a good thing for Dubai. We'd prefer to have more people arriving uh, than leaving. Uh, so that is a good thing but, but interesting to see how schools are having to negotiate this problem no doubt it is a subject that will run and run lots of people texting in with their comments already making me feel slightly better about myself thank goodness um, because I did feel a bit mean so but what about my children's education uh, but I suppose it's how everyone feels Susan Roberts uh, Senior Editor at Which School Advisor thank you very much for your words on this This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai our hot topic on the programme today is whether or not Dubai schools are starting to run out of space. We've had lots of fascinating messages coming in that suggest that they are, at least anecdotally. We just heard from Susan Roberts from Which School Advisor. She says that she's been speaking to lots of schools who are not so much struggling with an influx of pupils because it's very welcome, but they are uh, negotiating the, uh, the intricacies of that experience, let's say. Uh, so we are asking the question of you. Are you, are you finding that your school is filling up, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Is it having a positive impact or are you worrying about class sizes? Now, that is the question that we're asking today uh, as we see that huge surge of enrolment. Uh, Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai is one of the Emirates' newest cities. It opened in 2021. Let's find out how their campus is preparing for a further surge in enrolments. I'm joined by Charlotte Greaves, who's Deputy Head of Prep at the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. Hi, Charlotte. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on again. It is lovely to see you. Now tell me, are you experiencing what Susan Roberts from Which School Advisory described as a welcome surge in enrolments? Absolutely, yes. Um, however, we have had a very strong interest in the school since we did open. Um, but what we want to do is as we grow, we want to grow well, um, we want to make sure that we're planning for that. And um, what we've done as a school, and I know other schools do as well, is, is that we have made that part of our strategic plan um, so that we really stay true to our values and um, our, our school values and um, making sure that those recent enrolments are really, really tracked. What's really quite special about our um, school is the founding families that we started with. A lot of our enrolments on recommendation, um, and that's because they're recommending on the experience that they've had. So in the past six months, actually, we have seen an increase, and that's been around um, from our founding families, from international families, but also families that are relocating within the UAE as well. So yes, it is very much and it's very exciting. Yeah. So is there a hard limit to the number of students that you can accommodate? 
there absolutely is for our school um, and when our school journey began um, we really had that in our mind um, of the capacity as a school and how it was built so of course within that we have to have flexibility um, the added benefit for us is we have got plenty of space and we've been planning to grow year on year so at the moment our top level is empty because we're growing as a school into the secondary school um, and we want to make sure that you know all we are lucky and making sure that those discussions are happening and we have those people around us to support us with that realistically it must be very difficult to turn pupils away because you know you you're a school but you're also a business and and it's exciting if more people want to come to your school if you do have more students enrolling how will you manage will you renovate the school is there space to expand could you change the use of some of your classrooms so everything for us is currently in place for our growth over six years. So, you know, as I said, our upper floor will be moving up. So we are, you know, very full in the in the lower years. And as we grow and grow, we will um, and obviously our pupils, we're wanting them to stay as yeah. well. And that's so important. Well, you can't have a scenario um, where you've got 300 in year one, but no space for them once the time to get to year six. Absolutely. And that's part of our strategic plan. Absolutely. What we've done, and we've been very clear with this with everybody, is we've um, made sure our maximum class sizes are 20 in FS and 22 in the rest of the school. And we've always been very clear with our families about that. What we also want to make sure is we won't open a new class if we haven't got the right staff in place that's really important for us so for example we opened four new classes in January but we wouldn't have gone ahead with that if our teachers weren't in place and they didn't have those same expectations and ethos that we wanted so we are very lucky I have to say we are very lucky that we are a new school and have planned for that right from the beginning well it's real serendipity because you never know when you open a school whether or not you know the right financial the right geopolitical environment is going to come across and, and help you on your way are you basically full up now can people still put their names down or is there a is the reality is that you're full? And we are full in some year groups, Gosh. but we still have space in, in others. Yes. So it depends um, on the age. Depends on what, what I, yes. are people. I can, I can never work out. I think I can't work out whether families come here with quite young children. And therefore, that's why things get fuller younger. And then by the time they get older, maybe they take them back to their home country. It's one of those sort of strange, uh, strange environments in schools as, as to whether or what stage you decide to take your kids home to their home country. Uh, Charlotte, amazing. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, tell me, yeah, which which year groups are busier? Yeah. Um, we, we do find it's a lot heavy, you know, a lot more children in FS. Um, and we do find that some some parents want to take their children back to home countries for secondary. But more in my experience of the 15 years in Dubai is they're wanting to stay because the education here is so much better than in their home countries. So that's really good news for us. It is very good news indeed and, and makes it much easier. It means you don't have to send the kids away and you don't have to go home, which is what I certainly 
certainly don't want to be going home to the UK at the moment. Uh, Charlotte Greaves there, Deputy Head of Prep at Royal Scram Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Thank you so much for your time. Lovely as ever to speak to you. So many messages coming in on this topic. Our school at mm, has extended its buildings twice now and I'm not happy at all with the size of the school. It feels massive and that is an interesting topic. Maybe you don't want your children to go to a really big school, you know, especially when they're younger. You might feel that they're a little bit swamped in, in, in around, you know, all the other pupils. Even if the classroom size is normal, um, you could feel that it's all got a bit out of hand. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. We've been talking about the lack of space in some private schools in Dubai. Lots of messages coming in about that. But of course, here in the UAE, we are lucky enough to have the resources to fix the problem. They can either build a new classroom, they can buy more desks. But other countries struggle with even the basic things like furniture in schools. And one company is now trying to help to solve that problem by taking discarded furniture from schools here and rehoming them in developing countries. Joining me now to discuss that and how it works is is Jenny Mullen, who is Director of Education at Kids Inc. Design, who specialise in school furniture manufacturing. Hi, how are you, Jenny? Good to see you. Morning, Georgia. Long time. How are you? It's been a long, long time. Now, I'm going to do full disclosure, Jenny. Jenny used to teach my children. (laughs) She taught my eldest when he was three and unmanageable unmanageable and somehow Jenny he managed him delightful he was delightful and I'm sure he still is yeah <laughs> no no he actually has now recently <laughs> recently he has turned delightful it took a few years but but now he's great uh, uh, and we he had good times and lots of fun I'm glad to hear it now you're doing amazing work over at Kids Inc uh, tell us a little Thank bit you. about the problem that you're trying to solve is there really that much discarded furniture in Dubai there's a lot there's really? a lot I mean, you walk around my schools, they're beautiful. They're amazing. They are incredibly up to date. Um, And what we were finding, we were trying to take, I guess, a creative approach to being a bit more sustainable. Um, We've been through a huge sustainability audit over the last year where we've looked at every aspect of what we do at Kids Inc., Um, And and one of the things is, obviously, we're manufacturing furniture for schools. We design spaces in schools and we manufacture the furniture. Um, And of course, what that means is that schools are removing older furniture from from their spaces, you know, to put in our fantastic new designs. Happy to say that. (laughs) Um, But a lot of the furniture, a lot of the furniture that they're discarding, you know, could well have a second life. And I think that is the answer to being, you know, more sustainable is looking at the byproducts, the end products of of your whole, you know, functionality of your business, whatever kind of industry you're in and thinking, well, what can we do with that? Um, so together we sat down and we came up with this idea and of, of piloting really a scheme where we looked at rehoming some of the furniture. So we worked with two of our um, wonderful clients, the Tallinn Group, which uh, I know everybody in Dubai will know about Tallinn and the amazing work they do in schools and Cognita schools as well, um, who are equally fabulous. And they were able to donate around 6,000 pieces of furniture. 6,000? They really do get through their furniture. That is extraordinary. I never thought that they'd be getting rid of that much. But anyway, sorry, what did you do with it? What did you do with it? (laughs) Okay, no problem. So, I mean, the first thing we were able, so really what we did, first of all, is push out into our own networks and, and, you know, try and find people with connections who could could help us with, you know, places where this was needed. Um, And we met some people, I met a group of people who were able to connect us with the Ministry of Education in Sierra Leone. Um, And we sent two jam-packed 40-foot containers to Sierra Leone 
Um, I really need to give a massive shout out to a company called Acorn Shipping Limited, who provided all what they call the origin services for this. So they provided the packers, the people to get it to the port in Jebel Ali. They were amazing. They did it all, you know, completely gratis. It was amazing. Really? They did it for free? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good on them. They're amazing people. Because it's quite a palaver. Oh, sorry. Because it's quite a palaver. Furniture is not easy to move around, let's be honest, especially not desks. It's not. It's not. And, And also, I mean... Because when we're producing new furniture, we can think about the logistics of packing up, um, you know, packing it as effectively as possible. But of course, when it's older furniture and it's already been constructed and so, you know, we 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 had to have a really, you know, detailed planning session just how to make the best use of space in these two 40 foot containers that we had. And when I say we sent it off packed, I mean, every last corner, you know, if we could fit in a few extra books that we'd found or, you know, around the table legs or get something in you know a couple of bean bags around that's you know instead of shelving that's what we did they were jam-packed full of resources to Sierra Leone now this is a pilot project we are still waiting for those two containers to clear customs in Sierra Leone so um, one thing I wanted to say and take this opportunity if any can help anybody can help us influence that we would love that support it is you know it's a challenge sometimes working with countries far away um, but we're getting there we're getting through the process and you know I'm really really excited for the day that we see we've got about four or five schools lined up in Freetown in Sierra Leone capital Um, the day that we see those you know those pieces of furniture that once served children in Dubai serving children in Freetown will just be incredible amazing okay i've got 20 seconds left with you if people want to get involved i know this is just a pilot study but if schools want to get involved uh you know are you ready for that you know if they want to give you their old yes, furniture yes. you can um i have to say charlotte and paolo Bugazi, the founders of kids Inc., they are incredibly um what's the word entrepreneurial people who you know take a challenge and run with it so if we have sixty thousand pieces of furniture to rehome next summer We'll so be it. Well, if you want to get yeah. involved, make sure you get in touch with the team from Kids Inc. Design. It's an amazing initiative. And I had no idea there was so much discarded furniture. I learned something every single day. Uh, Jenny Mullen, thank you very much indeed for your time. Amazing to have you on the radio. Director of Education at Kids Inc. Design there. Yeah. And make sure you get in touch with them. If you know of any discarded furniture, books or beanbags. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back to the Agenda. Welcome back to Eye on Education. Our chance to look at education stories that have been making headlines all this week. And one of the biggest that has just literally broken in the last 24 hours is that universities in the UAE will be allowed to set their own entry requirements for students studying at publicly run schools. It is a major change that's been announced by the Ministry of Education. And it involves the Emirates standardised test. Now, that's known as MSAT, and it will no longer be a mandatory requirement for admission to college or uni uh, as of September, when the new academic year starts. Universities could still use the MSAT if they wanted to. They can also set a minimum score needed by students. Or they can rely on final exams approved by the ministry, which include things like A-levels or the International Baccalaureate. Now, the uh, ministry of Education say it's all about raising the standard of higher education and modernising the system. Uh, Now, Audrey Hamptner is the founder and CEO of the Bedrock Programme. They're a career and confidence development practice in Dubai, and she has welcomed the change. It follows along the lines of what's been happening in the US with the SATs, 
you know, these type of centralized tests do not necessarily benefit the students, nor do they give organizations a fair representation of what the abilities are of the students that are applying. The additional stress that it puts on a student also takes away from their ability to really comfortably and confidently shine and show their achievements is a huge factor and might actually disadvantage the organizations as well as the students' opportunities. Now that is interesting. That's Audrey Hamptoner there talking about college admissions tests as we know them and whether or not you know, they are fit for purpose. Let's discuss this further. I'm joined on the line now by Dr. Fahmida Hussein. Now, she's an associate professor, the head of computer engineering and informatics, and also, importantly, campus program coordinator at Middlesex University in Dubai. Joining me now on Teams. Hi, Dr. Hussein. How are you? Very well. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thank you very much for joining us on the line. Obviously, this is a very specific story about the Emirates standardised test, but it's got us thinking about testing in general and the best way for universities to gauge the quality of their applicants. I'd be really interested to know how you guys do that at, at Middlesex University in Dubai. What assessment do you use? Okay. First of all, thank you very much for having me here. It's my pleasure. And before I get into what we do at Middlesex, if you allow me, if we are talking about standardization in testing, and if we just understand what we mean by standardization, it's about enforcing a level of consistency or uniformity to a certain practice within an environment. Now, in testing in academia, we're talking about the environment being academia itself. And we all know how the face of academia is changing over the years. So we cannot silo the disciplines anymore. You know, if you talk about the classic disciplines of, for example, engineering and medicine, now we're talking about biomedical engineering. Now we're talking about robotic surgeries, use of AI. So already we are talking about crossovers in the disciplines. So we cannot really just test students and math and science or, I don't know, um, um, just uh, English, for example. Um, Again, the second thing is talking about the importance of diversity and um, inclusivity. So there are learning differences. Students learn differently. We need to think about the cultural aspects. That's diversity comes in. And really prioritizing learning over competition. So not really comparing the students, you know. Um, So I I really, you know, I was pleased to hear what Audrey had to say on this about testing, really, uh, the problem solving skills, the critical thinking, creativity, all of this, not necessarily we can test with use uh, standardizing testing. Um, Coming to Middlesex, so Middlesex University being the international branch campus of uh, our parent university based in London, uh, our entry criteria mainly looks at um, students coming from different curriculums, be it A-levels, be it American high school or other curriculums. So we are mainly looking at the test, the scores, the test scores, and some of the programs also have internal interviews or other internal tests. But we do not really have the standardizing. Yes, I mean, do sometimes we do look at SAT or other similar scores, but it is, it is not mandatory. Precisely, as I said, we need to be able to somehow give the opportunity to students with learning differences, bring in the cultural diversity as well. Okay, so I'm absolutely fascinated by this idea because when I applied for university and and I tried to get into either Oxford or Cambridge and 
the big thing there, there was none of this, you know, you know, people from different countries, diversity. It was whether or not you were brainy enough. And, and surely shouldn't that be the first thing you look at when you people are applying for university? Don't they just have to be clever enough to go on to tertiary education, to, you know, to, to write essays, to look in deeply into subjects? And if they're not brainy enough, shouldn't they be directed towards doing more vocational courses, which are just as valuable and just, you know, and can lead to really good jobs? Yeah. There are two questions, and I'm, I'm so glad you use the word brainy and clever enough. So again, uh, how are we assessing intelligence and what do we really might mean by intelligence? Are we still looking at the classic intelligence as IQ? Are we looking at EQ as well? How is creativity being assessed? So again, that all goes back to, so classic definition of intelligence is, are you able to write essays? Now, if you're talking about write, uh, writing essays, um, I think Chad GPT is writing fantastic essays these days. You know, the, the face of education is changing altogether. So are we writing the uh, assessing the ability of writing essays? Are we assessing only ability of mathematics? So that has to be, there has to be rethinking in all of that as well. The point that you made about vocational, that's an excellent point as well. So again, there can be crossovers there. Are we really, when we say degree programs, are we saying that vocational is only testing uh, technical knowledge and degree program is giving you theoretical how much you need in terms of theoretical. So all of that requires, I'm not just saying that we do away with things completely, but definitely shifts in mindset shifting is, is really required there. So to answer your question, first of all, we need to really define what we mean by brainy and intelligence and what are we assessing? Is creativity, is problem solving, is critical thinking, is all that assessed when we think that we are assessing intelligence? Um, and secondly, yes, vocational is very, very important. So the idea is rather than putting students in those boxes of you are cut out for a degree program, you're cut out for vocational training. The idea is to be able to make the students see what their possible career pathways are. And when I use the word career pathway, they are drastically changing these days as well. You know, so it's not classically, again, putting disciplines into boxes. If, if I give you an example at Middlesex, since you asked me in the beginning, so we're very big on inclusivity and diversity as well. So we have students with all kind of learning differences. We don't use the word disability anymore. We just say learning differences because students learn dif differently. We have students with different learning different di differences, but also we have students who have, uh, you know, hearing impairment or speech impairment and how we deal with them. So we need to have this inclusive environment. When I talk about diversity, maybe some aspect of cultural diversity as well. You know, so that is important. We also have these pathways that we offer to students before they get into the first year of undergraduate, what we call as international foundation programs. And that's where they get to explore what is it that really excites them as a career? You know, is it technology? Is it law? Is it business? Is it a combination of these? Um, so, you know, it makes them see what possible career pathways they may be interested in. And while they are in their undergraduate programs, again, make them see what kind of specializations they would be interested in. So if you allow me, I can give example from our Department of Computer Engineering. So even if a student registers for a generic BSc, IT or BEng program, we put them on career pathways from the very beginning. So we offer these extra courses, workshops to them. Is it robotics? Is it data science? Is it VR? You know, we're talking about so many technologies as well. So the world is going towards specializations. So, you know, we try and facilitate that process as well um, for the students. Again, um, I think you were, Audrey, in the, in the beginning mentioned industry readiness for the yes. students. 
that's precisely what industry should, academia should be looking at working with the industry you know through guest speakers through field trips through different mechanisms where industry academia governments all of them this triad comes together to prepare our graduates for the challenges of the 21st century really when i say challenges problem solving we don't even know what challenges we're going to face today we know about climate change we know about other similar things but i don't know 5 years down the road we may be talking about something else so it's really preparing the graduates to take over wow amazing fascinating to hear how things are changing how the climate of higher education is changing they're really interesting stuff thank you so much dr fumida hussain associate professor head of computer engineering and informatics and campus program coordinator at middlesex university in dubai real food for thought there uh, and yeah clearly it's changed things have changed since my day my goodness me only 43 and i'm already sounding like a granny this is i on education on the agenda with the royal grammar school Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yes, welcome back to the agenda. Georgia Tolley here. You are listening to our school's special Eye on Education. And there's only a few weeks to go until Emirati astronaut Sultan Al-Niyadi leaves for his six-month mission aboard the International Space Station. On Thursday, he faced the world's media at a press conference at the Museum of the Future. And we were there. Zena and I were there. It was very exciting to get out the studio and actually go to the Museum of the Future, which is beautiful. 41-year-old Sultan revealed loads more details about liftoff, which will take place on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida around February the 26th. Now, along with the rest of his crew of four, he will now go into 14 days of quarantine in Houston in Texas until they fly to Florida for the dress day rehearsal. That's when the astronauts get into their suits and practice boarding the spaceship. Then one or two days later, it is time for liftoff. Sultan, who is a father of five, said member of his family would be there to watch the launch. Now, during his mission, he's going to be expecting He's going to be speaking to UAE pupils every single week. Some of them will be live streams that will be shown in classrooms. And pupils will be able to ask him questions while he's floating around in space, which will be amazing. Um, The talks are part of a new educational project organised by the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Centre and the Emirates Literature Foundation. And they'll give Dr Al-Niadi the opportunity to share what life in space is like. Now, I was lucky enough to catch up with him yesterday Today. I was genuinely hugely excited. I get bizarrely enthusiastic about space and bizarrely enthusiastic about astronauts. And speaking to me shortly after the press conference, Sultan said that the physical training for the mission had been the most arduous. I think everything is vital, important for the mission, be it physically, mentally, technically. So um, everything is important. Everything is helping us to conduct the mission in a good shape. So um, I would say the physical part is something that you cannot gain immediately. You can definitely read something and overnight you'll be ready for it. But physically you need to keep up with the base of the mission. So hopefully we're ready mentally, physically and technically. Do you have any concerns that you might be lonely up there, that you might miss your family? Well, definitely missing the family is my biggest concern. Six months is a long duration, but we are lucky to have the means and the facility to communicate with them through emails, direct calls and video calls. So in that regard, hopefully we'll keep that going throughout the six months. How do your children feel about you going up? Because it's about as cool as it gets having a dad who's an astronaut. 
they're excited, but again, six months is a long duration for them. Hopefully, I can communicate every single activity I do on board and make it fun for them to watch. So I want to keep that going throughout the six months and hopefully it'll be uh, manageable for them to wait for that long duration. Of course, you'll also be communicating with school children more generally back here on Earth. Of course, one of the major aims of the mission is to encourage more children to go into science, more children to want to become astronauts. How big a deal is that for you? Absolutely. This is one of the biggest parts of the mission is to spread the enthusiasm and make the children seek STEM education. That is science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And hopefully in the future they choose a career that is dedicated to these elements. And hopefully they will seek a very productive career in the future, be it an astronaut, a researcher or an engineer that builds rockets. So yes, that is a big part of the mission that we are conducting in the future. I'm unduly preoccupied with the creature comforts that you're going to get up there. I worry about snacks, for example. Have you been able to choose your food? Well, yes. Uh, luckily, we have a very big menu. We, I think we spent a week trying different items, hundreds, literally hundreds of items that we can choose from. They say taste can change in space, but the variety we chose is, I think, sufficient for the six months. How excited are you? Well, it's, it's really hard to describe. But I am excited. I am ready. I'm vigilant now. I'm, I'm j- just trying to anticipate that moment and be ready for it. But yeah, excitement is really high. You must be nervous every time somebody sort of sneezes anywhere near you because health-wise you have to be in tip-top condition, don't you? Now quarantine is a thing. In the first mission, it wasn't a thing. When we say quarantine, nobody know what a quarantine is. After COVID, yes, it's, it is something that we take seriously. Hopefully, uh, Once we're done here, we go into the quarantine period to make sure that we are safe and sound to travel to the International Space Station. Fantastic there to speak to Sultan Al-Niyadi just days before he goes into quarantine ahead of his six-month trip up to the International Space Station. Now, during the press conference, I also asked him a question. And he was actually on stage with the UAE's first astronaut to go to space, Haza Al-Mansouri. Now, you'll hear he sort of chips in cheekily at the end, and it gives you a real sense of just how close the two are. Are you allowed to take any personal items with you? Because I know that space is at a premium in space. Yes, I think we're lucky enough to take some personal items. So I can't reveal everything, but I'm taking a jiu-jitsu kimono. I like to do jiu-jitsu, so probably it's going to be fun to do it in space. I'm taking family photos, my kids' photos, and I'm taking small tentin rockets that I'm going to probably throw it and see whether they're going to fly or not. I assume they will, because weightless. So yeah, these are some of the items I'm going to take to the International Space Station. I even gave him some of my personal items also. (laughs) Guilty by association. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you get a sense of just how well they get on there. They really are part of a team. Now, of course, Hazar Al-Mansouri, who you just heard at the end there, actually spent eight days aboard the International Space Station in September 2019. He was the first Emirati in space and the first Arab in space. And at the event, I asked him what advice had he given Sultan? From the get-go, from the beginning, actually, uh, we started together on training in my first mission, and I am now uh, on, on backup crew for him. So my advice to him has been always focus on your training and enjoy every bit of it, like especially floating in space and watching Earth from there. It is a view that few people just have that privilege to see it from there. So enjoy it 
and make sure that you take this experience with you back home and share it with your kids and with your family. Of course, he is going to be out there for six months. Is there a little bit of you that feels a bit jealous? Uh, I, definitely, uh, I am happy for him. He was there for me in the first mission. Uh, yes, it was a short mission, and he's going to do a six-month mission. So it's a bit different. And uh, I'm going to help him, actually, in this mission. I'm going to be in the ground doing, like, Capcom training for him, communicating with him while he's up there. So, so I'm going to be with him somehow. Yes, he's still stuck with me. You're very much part of the same team, and, that, and that's what's so lovely about the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Centre is you get a real sense that the astronaut programme is teamwork. I'd like to ask, how has life been since you came back to Earth with a bump? It was busy. I mean, like, uh, just to, to go to space and come back, people, they want to ask you a lot of questions regarding space, experience, and that's a big thing, especially kids. You want to make sure that you transfer this experience to them in a way that they have this, like, uh, excitement and... They want to just do it when they grow up. So that's really important, especially kids. I, I love to speak to them, talk to them about space and watching Earth from there or doing experiments up there. That is by itself, it's a big and huge thing. And I'm still training to, be, to fly in future, so I think that's going to happen. So I'm always uh, ambitious and hopefully maybe in future I will go to the moon. You never know. Taza Al-Mansouri there giving us a little bit of a hint of what could be the next mission for the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Centre. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, welcome back to the programme. It is 12.38 and this is Eye on Education, which is our special schools programme with a focus on learning and hundreds of children and their parents are attending the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature, in particular for an event that took place yesterday as authors David Williams and Ben Miller came together for a joint talk about their books. I was lucky enough to pick up tickets from a friend who couldn't go, so I actually took my eldest to it. Uh, and I recognised lots of people there, and it was the most amazing talk. They were really brilliantly funny, brilliantly engaging and really kept the attention of even really quite young children who were in the audience. Now it is the 15th edition of the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. It's taking place in venues across Dubai over the next week or so. Uh, There's also many author talks taking place this weekend. It feels like this weekend is a major focus. But as part of the programme dozens of authors also go out into the community to meet either pupils, they actually go into the prison as well, they meet prisoners they really sort of engage or try to engage the whole of the Dubai community in, in literature over this period. And actually, uh, Ben Miller was one of those authors uh, who actually went to a school, over, well, went to several schools over the last few days, including Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. The pupils there uh, got the treat of his visit. I heard him yesterday afternoon. He was very, very funny. But I actually have already spoken to him. I actually did an interview with him uh, a few days before he came out to Dubai in preparation for this programme. He's absolutely charming and incredibly funny. Uh, and I kicked, off, uh, I kicked off by asking him how excited he was about the upcoming event. And also, could he tell me a little bit more about his latest book? My first story is written for my oldest son, Jackson. That was called The Night I Met Father Christmas and the Boy Who Made the World Disappear for my son, Harrison. And when I say written for, I don't mean like dedicated. I mean, like they are the main character in the story. And then, yeah, the day I fell into a fairy tale, my daughter Lana is the main character. You very rightly say I then ran out of children. So my dog, 
played a leading role in my fourth book, which was How I Became a Dog Called Midnight, about a boy that swaps bodies with a dog. And then, yeah, that brings us to this book, The Night We Got Stuck in a Story. So this is a story about Lana and Harrison together, so my youngest and middle children. And they go on an adventure, basically. All my books are sort of magical fairy tales about families, really. That's, that's kind of my thing. Um, so in this story... Lana and Harrison go to stay with their Nana and Grandad, and they have Nana and Grandad have this strange hollow tree at the bottom of their garden. And Lana and Harrison discover that if they climb up the inside of the tree, they can climb into their bedtime story. Now, obviously, you're not just an author. You also act in lots of films, lots of movies. Everyone's seen you in Paddington. I suppose the children have seen you in Paddington most recently. Do you pull strands of the characters that you meet in the films? Do you pull strands from the creativity of those films into your books as well as your everyday life? There are some threads, actually, yeah. I mean, I've always loved doing stories for children, so I've always loved doing children's films. So I've been in as many as will have me. (laughs) You're right, I was in um, Paddington 2. I'm in the Johnny English films with Rowan Atkinson and... The first escape that I had, it wasn't films or TV, it was it was books. My parents were English teachers and we had so many books at home. And this is when British public libraries were in their heyday. And I had, we had the most amazing public library in Nantwich when I grew up. I just remember reading so many fantastic books, mainly the classics. And I think that's what's kind of influenced me. Here's the thing, I always loved the classics and I always loved Enid Blyton. And I guess I'm just trying to take... I just, I'm trying to take like classic stories and and write them like Enid Blyton. <laughs> I totally, I mean, I totally empathise with that. I can still remember the time when our local library in Dorchester uh, allowed you to take home seven books a week rather than just five, yeah. and that was literally Christmas. And you could, what see, you mean. and because it was all paper, you'd have that little card in the front of the book, you know, that little printed thing, and you could see all the people that had taken it out before you. So fascinating. So we get a real sense there of exactly why you've become an author and your sort of passion for literature. You are a regular visitor to Dubai for the Emirates Literature Festival. You'll have done all the usual tourist stuff. What do you now do when you come here? Because I think the last time we spoke, you said, oh, I haven't got anything this afternoon. I'm going to go off an adventure. Yeah, I mean, I love Dubai. There's so many different things to do. I I also like going down to Atlantis, pressing my nose up against the glass. (laughs) Um, Not just at the fish, I say, also at the people. And... I'm looking forward this year. I hear there may be a kite surfing expedition. I've never tried that. And at least I hope that's what it is. It says Kite Beach. So it could be just a beach called Kite Beach. But I'm kind of hoping that there's going to be some kite surfing involved. That I would love to do. I did once do one of the most fun things I've ever done in Dubai was dune bashing, going out in a four by four. They let the tires down and they kind of surf over the dunes. It's something absolutely brilliant fun and of course i'm a big foodie so you know i love the fact that there's so many fantastic different types of cuisine the hotel we were staying at last year there was the most amazing italian restaurant just over the road i mean it's little unexpected discoveries like that and then of course you do the school trips here and you go actually into schools and meet pupils what's it like meeting your young fans i've heard various hilarious stories from authors who meet their young fans and, and find them very blunt? Well, of course, one of the things I always start with is I say, I'll just introduce myself. You know, I'm an actor and I've been in these films and I put up posts of films. 
And uh, of course, I, you know, I put up Paddington too. And I said, can anyone tell me the part that I played in Paddington? And the last time I came to the festival, someone uh, on the front row put up their hand, a child put up their front row. And they said, was it Paddington? <laughs> um, oh, that's brilliant. I didn't quite get to wear the best suit. <laughs> oh, it's genius. I love the idea of children genuinely feeling confused. To be honest, you are a very adaptable actor. You do morph into your character in each of these films. I think it's probably one of your greatest talents that that you aren't instantly recognisable in every single role because that's sort of what an actor's meant to do, I guess. It works for you and against you. I mean, it's great because you get to play lots of different parts. I think the the downside of it is, as you say, nobody sort of, people often don't <laughs> realise that it's you in the different in these sort of different roles. What I love about it is the variety, you know, always doing something different and you're always trying to learn. The things I really enjoy, like learning a new genre, like you suddenly like, you know, like I did a horror film for the first time last year and that was really, it's really fascinating to do, you know, to do a completely different genre and they've all got the different, well, it's a different atmosphere making them for a start, but they all have their own sort of technical quirks. I always find that quite interesting. That is our children's author and famous actor, Ben Miller. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there. Welcome back to the Agenda. Welcome back to Eye on Education. We are discussing the ongoing Emirates Airline Festival of Literature on the programme now, as children's author Ben Miller is currently in Dubai for the festival. Now, he starred in Paddington 2 and Johnny English, as well as the adult series Bridgerton. But he's also the author of books like The Night We Got Stuck in a Story, which has just been published. He's also been touring schools in Dubai, meeting pupils, including those at the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. He's also doing four sessions at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. He did one yesterday with David Williams. He's another amazing children's author. We were lucky enough to go along, me and my eldest. Uh, it was fantastic, uh, well worth going down there. And even young children uh, were really engaged. Uh, but Ben Miller is going to be doing three more throughout the weekend. And he explained the subjects to me. I'm doing a really fantastic event called The Story Carousel with three other authors where we're getting a bunch of kids and what we're going to do is we're going to split them into four groups each group will be with an with an author and we're going to help them on one of four aspects of writing their own stories and then they'll evolve to the next table so hopefully by the time they've been all the way around they'll have worked with you know an illustrator you know someone to help them develop the characters someone to help them develop the plots and someone to help them develop the settings of their stories i think that'll be really really exciting and then probably my favorite of all we're going to do a fantastic folk tale telling event again four authors together each from a different cultural tradition telling one of their favorite possibly slightly obscure fairy tales for everyone's entertainment so that we can kind of really try and get to the root of some of those really ancient stories that have kept us entertained ever since human beings sat around a fire and toasted marshmallows. That sounds absolutely fascinating, particularly that final one, because that will be for the the grown-ups as well. I'm going to ask you one final question, which is, obviously, if you're going to be talking about David Williams' style of writing, you're going to be helping children write their own pieces and, and, you know, illustrate them as well. What is your own writing style? Are you somebody who sits down and does it to deadline, bangs out 20,000 words in a day, or are you much more erratic? I don't find writing particularly easy. I don't know that it's meant to be easy. I've sort of become uh, accommodated to the fact that it's quite painful. Um, (laughs) 
I just sort of stick at it, really. I mean, it is erratic in terms of how much you produce in a day. Some days, woefully little. <laughs> um, but generally, I think on those days, there's probably something else going on. You're trying to figure out a problem or, you know, you're trying to kind of get a part of the story to work. All I want is I just want children to want to keep turning the pages. I want them to be really excited about the story, really feel like they're in a world that they'd always always wished that they'd experienced. And I want them to be chasing the pages till they get to the end of the story. And for the end of the story, really, really to have a big impact on them, not just in terms of how exciting it is, but also that it makes them think in some way, that it makes them puts together the pieces of the world. Maybe just one corner of the jigsaw for them, but it just puts a few pieces together for them. Actor and author Ben Miller there, who has been touring the in- the schools in Dubai ahead of the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. I'm not sure whether his events are all sold out, but it's well worth checking out online. Just go to LitFest online and you can find all of the sessions that are going on, not just over this weekend, but also over next weekend as well. Uh, always a fantastic event. And Ben Miller was, was really lovely to talk to. For such a famous person, he's incredibly down to earth. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.